right where you're sitting now. Hello there and welcome to episode 102 of Right Where You're Sitting Now. So we are going to be, I spoke about it in the last episode, but we're going to be releasing our Patreon next week. That is the plan. So we should have the Alan Greenfield episode ready by then. Um, first episode of a series we're doing with Alan Greenfield called The Greenfield Files. That is a Patreon exclusive show. Um, we're also going to give you early access to the existing content. So you'll get you know, a day or two beforehand, you'll get episodes of Sitting Now and The Move Zone. You also get access to our Discord server, where we hope to build a, a nice little community of people, and we'll be doing ongoing research for videos and for you know episodes and things, so you can kind of get involved, suggest stuff to us. You know, we're always looking for suggestions of you know if you feel there's a glaring hole in the kind of topics we've covered or the people we've interviewed, um, that's a good place to come and tell us. We're going to be spending time there. I'll be on there. Mark might be on there if I can teach him how to use Discord. He's, he doesn't do technology. Let's put it that way. Um, he's getting better. I'll give him that. He's getting better, but he doesn't really do it. But I'm sure Ulysses Black will jump on there. I'm sure Joseph Matheny and David Metcalf will jump on there from time to time. So, yeah, it should be fun. We're going for $5 a month, which I think is pretty reasonable because, you know, everyone's, everyone's hurting for cash at the moment. So $5 seems, you know, that's like a cup of coffee and, you know, maybe a a candy bar or something <laughs> something in those lines i know that uh it's popular to say for the price of a cup of coffee but no we're not going to say that because coffee doesn't cost five dollars well maybe it does in america actually it does in vegas i can tell you that um, maybe not in the rest of america so yeah we'll um we hopefully you know by the time i announce the patreon we should have the greenfield episode delivered and if not it will be like days after so it's you know get in early get on the ground floor before the greenfield files so the greenfield files i didn't really talk about it particularly well last episode greenfield files is going to be um myself and alan greenfield and the format for the show is that for half the show we'll talk about a subject near and dear to mr greenfield's heart so in the first episode we're talking about the shaver mystery you know and in the second episode it could be men in black or um the cipher stuff or what you know whatever take you know whatever takes our fancy and then for the second half of the show we're gonna have a section in the discord server where you can leave questions you can we might set up an email as well for people that don't want to use discord so you know so patreons don't feel left out if you know they're not using uh, discord or they don't know how to use it or you know because it can be a bit confusing so i'll probably set up an email but you know there's if there's questions that have you've always wanted mr greenfield to answer here's your chance to do that so yeah it's quite exciting i'm quite looking forward to it we, we already have a pretty good relationship with a lot of our listeners especially over the last year it's been great we've been chatting away to people so that's been good but having a place where we can all kind of chat together i think is is, is a bit more fun so yeah i've always like i kind of miss internet forums do you remember those they were good fun weren't they they could be kind of dramatic but they were quite fun most of the time but yeah so that's the plan that's the plan so next week it will be announce the url one person's found it already it's not the most unobvious of urls uh, and so we already have a patreon that one person but yeah you know uh, i wouldn't recommend doing that until next week because we'll you know we'll all be ready for, all ready for you anyway this week we are talking to professor mark j sedgwick he's he's the author of traditionalism the radical project for restoring sacred order which came out last year on uh university press i think oxford university press penguin um, it's actually his second book on traditionalism. He wrote another book in 2004 called Against the Modern World, Traditionalism and the Secret Intellectual History of the 20th Century. 
but he changed his mind after reading, writing that book. Uh, I think in that book he he considered traditionalism to be somewhat of a dead dead scene, as they say. <laughs> and uh, um, but then things happened in the mainstream to change his mind on that. So but so traditionalism, the book is excellent. It's the, if you're interested in you know Rene Gounon, Julius Evola, you know who were kind of occultists in their own right back in the day before moving on to traditionalism and rejecting um, the Western esoteric tradition and theosophy, that kind of thing, so which we talk about in the show. And it, it's not too academic, don't worry. I know some people see the words professor and they think, oh God, but no, it's not too academic. We um, talk a lot of history, we talk about Sufism a lot, because René Guénon became very you know, involved with Suf- Sufism, as did another, one of the main early traditionalists. We talk about Evola, we talk about the you know, how Evola and traditionalism influences the the extreme right wing, which is kind of interesting. Yeah, it's an interesting conversation. and It's a little bit different, I suppose, to what we normally cover because it's not, we're not talking about Crowley for a change. Um, we're talking about something kind of counter to that almost, something that rejects Crowley and rejects the Golden Dawn and rejects theosophy. So it's it, sh- it should be an interesting interesting window into that kind of world and how that world is manifesting through these kind of strange online groups like QAnon and uh, accelerationism and all this kind of stuff so it's a it's it's an interesting topic I think so anyway don't forget to join us online at sitting now on Instagram Twitter pretty much everywhere and at sitting now official on TikTok which I will start posting again I keep saying it every week but it's just difficult i don't understand it let's go on with the show and i will see you hopefully with in fact it will be with a co-host mark should be back on the next episode and if not before then i might see you on the greenfield files so uh, yes keep an eye out for the announcement for the patreon url see you next time Hi, Mark Sedgwick. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Could you give us a brief biography of yourself, please? Yeah, I mean, I was I was born in London, um, so I'm British by origin, at least. Uh, and in the 80s, I moved to Cairo, taught at the American University in Cairo. And then in 2007, I moved to a job here in Denmark at the University of Aarhus, where I'm now Professor of Arab Islamic Studies. Excellent. So what I want to talk to you about today is traditionalism. Um, yeah. And it's a topic that I think a lot of people get wrong a lot of the time. I think a lot of people think it means people that are into traditional values, etc. So yes. I, so I figured to start off, let's just quickly coin what traditionalism actually is. And then we'll get a bit more into the kind of characters involved with it. Yeah, sure. Okay. Well, I mean, of course, there, there is more than one sort of traditionalism. And somebody who does like traditional values or bow ties or something like that can also be described as a, a traditionalist with a sort of lower T. And then there are Catholic traditionalists who don't like what happened at the Second Vatican Council and so forth. But the traditionalists that I've been working on and that I think are actually the most interesting ones could be described as Gainonian traditionalists because the work of the French uh, philosopher, esotericist René Guénon, is, is central to everything 
So uh, if we're going to if we're going to understand traditionalism in those terms, we have to understand what Guénon meant by tradition. And Guénon wrote a lot about what he called the perennial tradition and the perennial tradition. Perennial sort of means eternal. It's been around since for forever, and it'll be around forever. And by tradition, he meant something close to to wisdom or truth or something like that. So uh, traditionalism is fundamentally about eternal truth. And the truth is is metaphysical, the truth. Religious is a bit complicated to use in this case, but Geno himself said metaphysical. He also used the term esoteric a lot. So we could say that it's eternal esoteric truth. And of course, eternal esoteric truth uh, you know, goes back many, many thousands of years. And whereas the sort of traditional is in the sense of the bow tie, uh, and when they started wearing bow ties, late 19th century, I think, um, as far as the real tradition is concerned, late 19th century isn't traditional at all. Late 19th century is modern. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting that it seems to be having a bit of a renaissance at the moment, a word that the traditionalists uh, <laughs> don't like themselves. But <laughs> um, but because yeah. you wrote a book prior to this current one um, that seemed to sort of, uh, uh, predi- well, sort of declare the end of traditionalism almost, and then you changed your mind. Yeah. Um, yeah. What kind of uh, brought you round on that? Well, what, what brought me round was events. <laughs> uh, what I learned is one should be careful about making predictions. Uh, but in a sense, I wasn't entirely wrong because traditionalism has always divided into two streams, one of which is primarily esoteric and one of which is primarily political. And the reason that in the earlier book I, I said that I thought that it was you know, perhaps coming to an end is that when I looked for equivalents today, or that was 20 years ago, equivalents then to the leading key figures of the the, the esoteric traditionalism, which had been especially strong during the second half of the 20th century, I couldn't really find major figures like that. So I thought, well, okay, perhaps you know, perhaps the the wind is 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 coming down or something like that. Um, and what what then I didn't expect twenty years ago, uh, but what has very clearly happened since, is that the political stream has interested more and more people and has become more and more significant in alternative politics and even sometimes. In, in mainstream politics. Yeah, so, you see people like Bannon and Dugan yeah, referring to yeah, themselves as yeah. traditionalists now, don't you? Which is interesting. But uh, and Bannon, I mean, those are those are the, probably the two, but the, the two best known, and they're traditionalists in slightly different ways, because Dugan started his career as a traditionalist and has added various things onto it. And Dugin, traditionalism is essentially an intellectual movement, and Dugin is an intellectual, and he's he's given I don't know how many lectures and written I don't know how many books on a wide range of topics. The earliest ones were purely traditionalist, 
and the later ones are, are adding extra things to it. Whereas Bannon is, is, is uh, I mean, he's far from stupid, but he's, he's not an intellectual, he's more of an activist, he doesn't write books. So for, for Bannon, I think traditionalism is something which has been important for his own development, um, whereas, but not central, whereas for Dugin, it, it's been central and remains central. So let's let's look at some of the kind of key characters of traditionalism mm. because uh, really, I mean, and there's definitely a bifurcation as you were saying earlier on between two of them um, in particular. I'd say um, obviously uh, Evola and Ganon, they seem to yeah. <laughs> very much at some point um, take yeah. very different paths. But let's start off with Ganon um, and sort of what was I mean. How did Ganon sort of start, as it were? What was the kind of atmosphere around him at the time? You know, what what kind yeah, of what bred yeah. a Ganon? <laughs> I mean, he he's he started in at the very end of the nineteenth century as a as a as a student in in Paris of the what was then called the Belle Epoque, um, where you know there was so much going on. In, in every possible respect. And this was the end of the period which had been so productive in philosophy and art. You know, if one thinks about painting, can one think about painting without Paris of, 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 in the late 19th century? So um, what, we all, what we all know about is the painting, but there were all sorts of things going on also politically um, on, on, the, on the left and uh, in, in terms of what nowadays we tend to call esotericism and what at the time was often called occultism. And I mean, nowadays the term occultism has acquired some quite negative associations for, for many people. So yeah, the term tends not to be used um, much nowadays, but it was, it was more used then uh, and and Genon, the young Genon, got, got involved in all sorts of the occultist activities uh, of late 19th century Paris. And he, he worked his way through a number of organizations and then finally decided that a lot of them were um, fraudulent. Uh, or is, is he as he said when he wrote about the Theosophical Society, he called it a pseudo-religion. So not authentic. Uh, and therefore, in the end, just a load of nonsense, <laughs> or possibly even worse than that. Well, Blavatsky's certainly been outed in you know the last few decades as a, you know, a, a somewhat of a fantasist when it comes to her. Yeah. Well, there were. I mean, it, it does seem it does seem that that there were sort of fake windows and and moving walls and and things like that. But there was a certain amount of the of the obviously fraudulent going on, but. Uh, there was an awful, also an awful lot of reading and repurposing of earlier traditions. So um, I, I, I think it be, I think it's a bit, it's a bit difficult to be a, a fully paid-up theosophist today, given that some of the, you know, the secret messages read in, written in, was it 
gold ink on purple paper or purple ink on gold paper. <laughs> I mean, these, these, are, these are very difficult to take seriously nowadays. Uh, but the, her, her writings, I think, have to be taken seriously because so much, so much of the New Age, for example, uh, actually came through Blavatsky. So, well, so much of it still does. I recently visited a place in Italy called Damanhur, which is like a, a community oh, yes. that, yeah, and um, the, immediately the moment I saw the symbology they used and the language they were using, it was Blavatskyism. It, it was, it, it was yes. Atlantis and, you know, the, um, it was clearly directly, in, you know, linked to Blavatsky. It was, it was interesting. I hadn't really seen any, you know, d- so blatant Blavatsky and kind of groups of late, but uh, yeah, no, it was kind of fascinating. And yeah, I think I went there once, and it was it was a great visit. Oh yeah, they're, they're great. They're nice people. It was, uh, yeah. but yeah, and I think what people don't realise is that at that particular time, Blavatsky and Theosophy in particular were kind of the dominant esoteric group, weren't they? Really, I mean, there wasn't. Oh, absolutely, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah no, so... I mean, there, there was so. Uh, they, they were so all-embracing that if you were going to be doing anything at all, it was hard not to pass through the Theosophical Society. Yeah, and then obviously you had the Golden Dawn coming in slightly later, and that kind of kick-started the Western esoteric tradition, which was, yeah. yeah, so you have these kind of competing traditions almost, don't you? And it, yeah, it's, it's an interesting period. I, I find the interest, as it becomes, and this is where I like, was talking a little earlier, I sort of start to sympathise a bit of Gunan. The more you look into the history of both groups, actually, you start to find interesting um, artistic liberties, let's say, <laughs> with, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, a, it's a shame. But anyhow, so that's Gennon's, you know, that, that, that's Gennon's background. That's mm-hmm. where he started. Uh, and that's what he, in many ways, rejected, but also in some ways continued. Um, when did he start to develop a kind of perennial um, like view? Well, the perennial, I mean, the, the perennial idea, the idea that there, there has been this ancient wisdom. Um, I mean, you, you find that in Blavatsky. Uh, it's, it's, if, you, if you try and trace its emergence, most historians say that it emerges during the Renaissance. And there's definitely one stream of it which you can trace from Renaissance Florence up to Leibniz. Um, and, and this has this has been done several times, but you can also spot traces of it earlier on in early early Christianity, for example, and, and then when you know in, in for, for Leibniz, it's um, it, it's part of the sort of Enlightenment debate about what is religion really and what do we do with it and you know we, 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 we've had the reformation and we've now got the reign of reason and can we be reasonable and religious at the same time and is there a reasonable religion and, 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 and that sort of thing uh, but by, by the time we get to the late 19th century that debate's basically over and what we are getting instead, I think, with, with Blavatsky and then with, with Genon as, as well, 
is we've got people who are saying, okay, we have, we've been through the Christianity thing. Uh, It turned out not to be very satisfactory. What shall we do now? Where shall we turn now? And of course, this coincided with the period where a lot of non-European religious texts were being translated and becoming available. So one place that people started to look was a non-European religion. So Blavatsky herself, as, 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 you, as you surely know, turned to, to Buddhism. And that was part of a very important trend, very long trend. I mean, people, people still uh, go to the East in, in, in search of, of religious wisdom. And, and Kedon himself did this, although uh, not, not towards Buddhism. I mean, he, he, he was initially quite hostile to Buddhism, probably partly because of his, of his hostility to Blavatsky. He was persuaded later on to take a kinder view of Buddhism, uh, but his but his interests were initially in, in Hinduism and in Sufism. So why those two in particular? Because they seem to be the the kind of bedrocks of his. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think I think Hinduism because everybody was into Hinduism at that point. You know, everybody was reading the Vedas and the Vedantas and all the all the, all the different Hindu scriptures, which which had had been translated and were fascinating people in trying to trying to find the, the trying to find wisdom in, in that. So um, it's it's not surprising that he was reading these 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 Hindu texts because that's what you know one one would read in that period if one was interested in, in the esoteric. The, the Sufism was unusual. Uh, and I think the reason for that is actually simply that he met this guy who we now call Ageli, Ivan Ageli, who was also known as Abdul Hadi, who was actually a by origin, he was Swedish. He, he was he was partly a painter, partly an art critic, partly interested in esotericism, and he had spent years in Egypt and uh, had learned Arabic and had learned quite a lot about Sufism. He, he was he was pretty well informed in, in both the theory and, to some extent, the practice. Uh, of Sufism, and somehow, we don't know how, somehow he met Geno, or Geno met him, and uh, Geno was fascinated by, by what Ageli had to say about, about Sufism. And the first uh, journal that Geno edited, um, before, just before the, the, the First World War, was initially he was the editor and Ageli was one of the contributors and as as the 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 journal carried on and they lost more and more contributors finally it ended up 
being being Gianoan again, uh, and, and then the thing collapsed, and there were no more issues. And 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 Agelli went back to Egypt and disappears entirely from the story. But but at this particular point in in Gianoan's foundation, uh, when when he's becoming increasingly skeptical about occultism, about about Blavatsky, about theosophy. Uh, as being pseudo, a pseudo religion. And you know, up pops this guy who knows real Sufism. There's nothing pseudo uh, about Ageli's understanding of Sufism. And there's nothing pseudo about the Sufism that he's understanding either. I mean, this is, this is the heart of the Islamic esoteric tradition. And, uh, and Ageli speaks almost perfect French. Uh, Ageli, as a young man, had been reading Swedenborg, um, so Ageli knows enough about the West mystical and esoteric tradition to be able to speak effectively and convincingly to somebody like Geno, who's, who's got a background in this. So that, I think, is, is how Geno gets into Sufism and why Sufism becomes so important for traditionalism and ultimately for Genon personally. Mm. Yeah, it's interesting. Sufism is something we haven't really covered properly yet, um, mm. but it's an oral tradition, isn't it? It's uh, Generally speaking, it's a master-student kind of progression. The, 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 the Sufi path very much emphasises the master-student relationship, although it always leaves... Uh, room for the what some people call the direct path, because the fundam the fundamental idea is that the individual Sufi is seeking to return to his origin or her origin, uh, which most of the time means God, and God either responds to the attempt to, to, to reach him. Or conceivably, because that's how God is, conceivably, just looks at somebody and says, okay, I'll take you. Uh, and then that person reaches God instantly without any. But, but this doesn't mean to say it's just an oral tradition. I mean, most, most Sufis who've ever lived have been illiterate. Because most people who've ever lived have been illiterate, right, to figure out that part. Um, but there is also a, an extensive written tradition of philosophy and theology and, and poetry. And uh, one of the top Sufi poets is, of course, Rumi. And for some reason, Rumi seems to have caught on much more in the United States than in, in the United Kingdom. But I think you probably find some room in most bookstores in the United Kingdom as well. So, I mean, this, this of course, is a later development, the, 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 the popularity of Rumi. Um, that, that started after Genon died. But, it's, you know, that's part of the, of the literary, of the, of the literary tradition of the world. Before we look into like the 
the boogeyman of Gunon with modernity. I was wondering, did I mean Gunon in an article you sent me? Gunon sort of brushed on the Yazidi, and I was always interested in what did Gunon write a lot about the? Was he interested in the Yazidi because they seem like a candidate as well? Uh, Gunon was interested in absolutely everything. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, he, he was certainly briefly interested in the Yazidis. They didn't. I mean, in the end. That that did, I mean, he was interested in everything, and and only pursued certain things. Mm. And the Yazidis is some things he didn't particularly uh, pursue, but it did come within within his his range. Of it. Yeah, it was interesting. He sort of brushed on it in that article um, briefly, but uh, I was wondering yeah. if he ever went any deeper. But um, so yeah, I brought up the boogeyman. When did um, when did modernity become such a uh, a dirty word for 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 Gunon and how did that sort of develop? This kind of um, seeing this as the, you know, the the thing that is anti-traditionalist. Yeah. Well, I mean, what 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 happened is that he started to see the when he started to find the the real tradition, the real perennial tradition in classic non-European sources, like the Hindu texts, like Sufism. He, he became more and more critical of specifically Western modernity. And the West and the modern West became increasingly the same thing. And, and then this, this, he ended up with this pair <coughs> of tradition and modernity, tradition good, modernity bad. Uh, East and West, which was the titles of one of one or other, yeah, Orient and Occident, Occident so, so East and West, which is the title of one of his earlier books. And that became a pair too. So the, the East was the place where you could find the perennial tradition. And the West was the place where the perennial tradition had been lost. Had not always been lost, but had been increasingly lost since the Renaissance and was more was was more and more lost as modernity developed, to the extent that in the end modernity could be defined as the loss of tradition. And that is the heart of his critique of modernity. And it's it's very fundamental because once you've decided that modernity is the loss of tradition, modernity is the negation of tradition. Modernity is the negation of truth. Then everything about modernity becomes a lie. The idea of progress becomes a lie. The idea of human equality becomes a lie. The idea of democracy becomes a lie. Uh, And you're not left with very much. No. (laughs) And actually, that's an interesting point to maybe start to look at one of the other main characters, because this is clearly where the political side can kind of slip in a little bit. Um, so the, the uh, you know, the the second big character, I'd say, in traditionalism is Julius Evola. Um, yes. 
let's talk a little bit about what what bond uh, what birthed rather um Evler and what kind of uh you know what kind of culture did he come from yeah well Evola, I mean, Evola first becomes really visible just after the end of the First World War when he, as a painter, he gets involved in the Dada movement. And he's, he's a pretty good painter. He's a pretty good theoretician of art. He writes about the theory of, 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 of the Dada movement. Um, and... Like like many other painters, this gets him involved in the esoteric magical alternative world. I was really struck by the parallels there, actually, between Gunon and Evola. Their kind of entryway into it. It's quite similar, isn't it? It's, um, yes, mm. yes, 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 exactly, exactly. And and then the, one of one of the oddities in Italy at this time is that the esoteric alternative leads to the political alternative. Now, um, this is also the case in Paris before the First World War. And Ageli, who I, the Sufi who I was talking about earlier, um, first got involved in the anarchist movement, and, and then he later got involved in the early animal rights movement. But in Italy, what Evola and other people got involved in was not anarchism, but fascism, which, of course, as we know, has roots in in the left as well. Yeah. We think of it as defining the right, but actually that variety of right does have roots in the left. But anyhow, uh, that's, that's what uh, Evola had got involved in, and... He got involved in people with other people who were interested in, in magic and in promoting fascism. Um, and they were subsequently a bit disappointed because instead of getting involved with magic, fascism ended up making an agreement with the Catholic Church, uh, which was 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 very much. Um, getting in bed with the enemy as far as ever. <laughs> kind of the antithesis, really, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> but but this, is, this, is, this is one of the keys to understanding of that he'd, he'd already got interest in the esotericism, magic, and he'd lost interest in art. He, he carried on painting throughout his life, but, but he became much, much more interested in politics uh, and political activism. So he, he was already pro-fascist when he discovered Genon and Genon's critique of modernity and Genon's concept, concept of, the, of the primordial tradition. So um, because he was already interested, I mean, there are other people, there are people who come along later who, who were interested in ecology and then they discover Genon. So of course they apply Genon to, to ecology. But, but with Evola, he, he applied uh, Geno's understanding uh, uh, to, to politics and more or less single-handed created political traditions. Mm. Yeah, it's interesting. He, um, uh, 
does does Evola come from an aristocratic background generally? Because that's one of the things you always yeah. hear about Evola that he was an aristocrat. Yeah, well, the Baron. The Baron, yeah, though. Yeah. Uh, I mean, given that his father was a telegraph operator, <laughs> working for the <laughs> so that's a no. Then <laughs> that's a no. Yeah. yeah. I mean, what, what quite how it happened? Um, <laughs> no, it's, it's not really clear. Uh, t- towards the end of the Second World War, when he was living under a pseudonym. Uh, to avoid arrest, he promoted himself to Count. Oh, okay. Count Evola. <laughs> no, 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 no. Count something else. I can't quite. Count von something or other. Uh, I can't right. um, but uh, no, but he's, he, he didn't. He, he did. It depends, of course, what you mean by aristocratic. And in his own terms, aristocratic meant referred to a nobility of spirit, not to uh, having inherited uh, a title. And he complained that a lot of 20th century so-called aristocrats uh, were better at manipulating the cocktail shaker or the tennis racket than the sword. And as far as he was concerned, real aristocracy was about fighting, was um, about being a warrior. Mm. And that's interesting because if when you look at kind of contemporary, like some contemporary internet personalities, they seem to parrot that same. So uh, Andrew Tate would be a good example where it's all about combat and. Uh, you know, strength and kind yeah. of, yeah, using that to kind of, you know, um, kind of bolster a masculinity and that kind of thing. It that does, yeah. it smacks a little bit of Evola. <laughs> that, yeah, no, it does. It does. It does. And I, you know, I wonder, I don't know whether Andrew Tate reads Nietzsche. Should you think Andrew Tate reads <laughs> I don't know. He might, he does seem quite intelligent, but he, um, <laughs> it's, it's quite possible, but, um, I don't know. But... I don't know, but, 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 you know, Nietzsche tends to crop up in the mm. background of, of, of so many of these things. Yeah. Um, I mean, Evola, you know, everybody read Nietzsche, right? And, and Evola certainly read Nietzsche and certainly took certain things from Nietzsche. And even if, whether or not Andrew Tate has been, is sitting in his Romanian prison cell reading <laughs> Nietzsche. Uh, <laughs> um, I mean, he's, he's, he's certainly, he and all these other people are certainly influenced by certain Nietzschean ideas. Mm, yeah, yeah. So there's a fantastic quote from Evola um, that uh, fascism didn't ruin Italy, Italy ruined fascism, I think was the... Yes. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so how did he fall out with fascism then? Um, well, I mean, firstly, firstly, Mussolini made the dreadful mistake of making this agreement with the Catholic Church. And, and the, whole, the whole fascist movement, which started off with such glorious ideas, ended up as very much a bourgeois enterprise. And uh, the uh, not every fascist official was really a... Um, 
an ubermensch or a, or, a, or a great warrior or anything like that. And then, and for a lot of these people, uh, including for Dugin, this is, this is extremely important. Fascism got itself into an alliance with Nazism and lost the Second World War, which, you know, was, was a significant failure, one might say. Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, clearly after that, whatever one thought of fascism during the fascist period, and Evelyn clearly had a lot of reservations about fascism, although he supported uh, he had clearly had a lot of reservations about it, even during the, uh, the, the, the fascist period. But after the fascist period, now, when fascism had, had, had proved its own problems, proved, proved, proved its own inadequacy by failing, uh, he, he, he became even more critical of it. And he started to, um, there's a period where he's advising the Nazis as well, I believe. Well, yes. Okay. It's not exactly advising them, but during, during, during the Second World War, um, after, uh, well, uh, uh, fine. Uh, at, the, at the very, very beginning, he tried to um, advise the Nazis and they were not interested. And, and, uh, the the SS actually made a, 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 an internal order saying that people were to avoid this Italian level <laughs> contact. But then, in in around forty two, um, the the Nazis got more interested again with him because he was writing about race. The Nazis were, uh, as we know, obsessed with race and. They thought that whatever they were saying about race was a good way to understand Italian fascist views on race, which in a way it was because Mussolini at that point had got interested in, 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 in whatever he was writing about race. So, so he did, in a sense, represent Italian thinking. Then at the very end of the Second World War, after... Uh, after Mussolini is pushed out and has to be rescued by German troops and is initially taken back to Germany. Uh, and Evola is at that point in Germany um, because otherwise you know, the, new, the new government in Italy probably would have arrested him, <laughs> like, like the other, fashion, other, other people who've been leaving. Lights in the fascist regime. So, <coughs> Evola uh, is in, just happens to be, happens to be at Hitler's headquarters in East Prussia when, um, when, when Mussolini has been rescued and he's taken to Hitler's headquarters in East Prussia. And there's a photograph of Mussolini and Hitler and a few other people uh, sort of chatting with each other. And there's, there's a man in the background who some people think might be Evola, but frankly, it's a it's very indistinct image, so it's, 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 it's very difficult to, uh, to see. 
But although, you know, although he, he might perhaps have been in that group, he wasn't playing a leading, a leading role. He was allowed to publish works in Germany, wasn't he? Um, which was quite unique. Yes. Mm. yes, which is which is very which is very interesting. Um, and it, it represents a reversal of the earlier approach that we don't want to hear anything more from this man. Uh, because I, I was talking about race. And he the, he publishes in in German in Germany uh, a book called uh, Basics of Fascist Racial Teaching. And what is so interesting about this book is that in the first couple of pages uh, he says some very sarcastic things about Nazi racial teaching. I mean, Specifically, he says that their biological approach might be fine if it was a question of breeding racehorses or pedigree dogs, but that human beings are actually a bit more complex than that. And to try and do a purely base, a purely biological racism, I mean, he doesn't say as you Nazis do, but, but I mean, obviously, that's what he's talking about, um, is simplistic. And uh, I don't know how many other people were publishing uh, in, in, in Nazi Germany in, in 1942 books which were criticizing <laughs> fundamental aspects of Nazism. Yeah, it's quite, it's quite unique, isn't it? So well, one imagines that with his um, views on race, that his, he might, must have had a fairly dim view of Sufism and... Um, uh, especially Hinduism, I would have thought, uh, Evola. No, I mean, because his, his, his ideas on race were, were very different from the Nazi ideas. I mean, his, 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 uh, he, he doesn't divide the world into Aryans and others. Um, he doesn't even divide the world into whites and others. He divides the world into people who might be warriors and people who might make cocktails. Uh, and the, 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 the fascist government of Italy gets, actually gets quite worried about this because now he, he's, he, he starts suggesting that, that Italy and Italians are actually two races, two different races. Uh, which isn't, you know, isn't the message they want to be put across at all at this point. So, um, I mean, yes, he believes in race, but that doesn't mean to say that he's in any way anti-Indian or, or anti-Arab or anti-Sufi. Uh, and he actually gets, he gets interested in Tantra, he gets interested in aspects of Hinduism. He never gets particularly interested in Sufism. He, he seems to think that that's something which, again, oh, that's again, oh. um, and he says somewhere that uh, converting to, to, to Islam and Sufism like Genon did uh, requires a very fundamental shift of mentality and also involves languages that he doesn't know. 
Well, I mean, he's he's not he's not even he's not even really saying objecting to to to, to people becoming Muslim and Sufi. I was struck that um, he, when he spoke about um, races, he seems to talk. He almost seems to parrot the caste system, the Indian caste system, doesn't oh, he? Oh no, I mean he does indeed. Mm. He does indeed, and as does Evan. Uh, sorry, as does Ginn. So I mean, this is one of the things that that they have in common. That yeah, they're interested. They're, they're interested in hierarchy. They believe that there are natural hierarchies, and. They believe that one of the mistakes of modernity is to deny that there are natural hierarchies and that the the, the, the healthy society has to be built around these, these natural hierarchies. And there's a slight difference of opinion between Gaynor and Evola about which is the top cost because... Uh, Again, all the intellectual thinks that the top caste is the priestly caste, and the warrior caste comes next. Whereas Evola, with his appreciation of the warrior, uh, thinks that the the, the royal and, and, and priestly authority come together should come together. So he he doesn't follow. He sees himself as the warrior. And he did. I mean, he fought in the First World War. Uh, Second World War, his activity was purely political, although he did manage to, to, get, to get himself injured despite that. It was in Vienna, wasn't it? I think he was bombed, wasn't yeah. it? Yeah. 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 Now, it's interesting. Um, it really struck me that um, this particular sort of section of the book struck me because we're talking about this kind of caste system. Because that seems to pop up in accelerationism as well. There seems to be a real crossover between the two at this point, where the um, although the accelerationists um, seem to dislike the kind of traditional values, I suppose, or the traditional side of traditionalism, almost they yeah. they, se they seem to come to the same end point, where it seems to be that you know the res restoration of a kind of almost feudalism or a kind of. Um, uh, like a caste system uh, is it, interesting and they do seem to they seem to sort of occupy similar spaces at times and one in particular that seems to cross over is this idea of the Kali Yuga which is something that Gunon is speci um, specifically uh, obsesses over doesn't he to a degree yeah. Yeah. yes I mean this is this is of course another what another way in which in which Gunon describes modernity as the last of the four ages in, in the Hindu system, the Kali Yuga, as you say there. But, I mean, all of these people are, I mean, accelerations, of course, are a somewhat later phenomenon. But, but, but what, what all of these people have in common is a sort of confident expectation that the current system is going to collapse uh, and can perhaps be encouraged to collapse. Um, because, you know, the sooner it collapses, the better, and then we can move on to something better. Uh, I mean, this isn't exclusive to them, because the Marxists, the, the Marxist-Leninists, were also convinced that the internal contradictions of capitalism would lead to its, its demise and so forth. So perhaps it's, it's characteristic of, of, of radical people, of revolution. To, to, to expect the end of, of the current system. But, I mean, this is certainly something that, that Genon was, was very 
clear about um, <coughs> that modernity was coming was coming to an end. It's going to come to an end, and this is also something that that, that, that Evola was clear about, especially after the end of the Second World War, because he did clearly at one point think that an alliance of the two eagles, as he put it, an alliance of the German eagle and the, the Italian eagle, a Nazi fascist um, combination could perhaps bring about a new and better world. But when he didn't, he, he became profoundly pessimistic as well. And, um, and 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 it's very, it's very difficult to see exactly what the the, the late Evelyn whether he thought the change was possible whether he thought everything was doomed to collapse or whether he thought it was worthwhile to struggle to to fight for a new order worthwhile in terms of achieving its objectives I mean he said. There was sort of existentialism here almost. He said, yes, for an individual, it's worthwhile to fight for the new order. For you individually, whether or not you're going to get anywhere, this, this is a, an activity that can bring you self-realization and, and is therefore useful from that perspective. But whether he really thought that attempts to change society in the 1960s, early 70s, could actually achieve anything, or whether we were just stuck in the Kali Yuga and that's that, is not, is not really clear. It's interesting, it's probably... if you look at some of the French intellectuals as well, a bit later on, they sort of seem to have this similar view that Evola had, where Evola seemed to have, um, later in his life especially, seemed to encourage a return to... I guess nature and authenticity and this kind of thing. Where and you can see the same in stuff like uh, Baudrillard is the one I always come back to because I've read Baudrillard a lot. Um, <laughs> but he says the same thing, and it's kind of interesting that these two, you know, op opposing groups. I mean, Baudrillard was very, very left wing, <laughs> and Evola was very, very right wing. <laughs> um, but it's interesting. Well, I mean, of course, this is this is this is 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 one of the old paradoxes, isn't it? Um, that if you, it's, it's the distinction you can make between reformists and radicals, that uh, if you're more or less happy with things as they are, okay, then you're in one camp. And if you're, if you're extremely unhappy with things as they are, you're in a different camp. And, and that other camp contains people who tend to get classified as right or as left. Um, but, you know, sometimes actually they even admit that they have a bit more in common with each other. <laughs> yeah. So we have a third character, an uh, important character, uh, whose name I will butcher, so I will leave that name to you. Uh, <laughs> can you tell us about this third uh, bearded character, very stern-looking character? Um, in the stern-looking character. Yeah. <laughs> a religious-looking character. Yes. <laughs> yeah, yes. If you had a visual dictionary of religious person, he'd be a very good fit, wouldn't he, as a, as a visual? <laughs> I suspect that you are talking about Preacher of Sean. Yes, I am. <laughs> yeah. So Fritjof, named after the 
Norwegian explorer, Fridtjof Nansen. Uh, his father was a musician, but obviously was keen about polar exploration. In fact, what he called his son. Uh, Sean, a, a German name. His father was a German, uh, but he was working as a musician in Switzerland, so, so Sean was, was born in Switzerland. And uh, always he, he, he spoke, uh, he, he spent a lot of time in France. His mother was French. She moved to France after his father's death, um, worked in France for a long time, but he always had a Swiss accent. Um, so, yes, well, I mean, his background, as I said, musician, Switzerland. Um, unlike any of these other characters, at one point he actually had to earn his living, uh, which he did designing textiles. He worked in the textile factory. But fortunately, he acquired enough fans uh, including some with a bit of money, that um, after 50s, 50s, I'd say, 1950s, he didn't have to earn his living any longer because he was supported by his grateful followers. And he wrote about, uh, not just about esotericism, but also about religion. This is, this is quite interesting, I think, because Genot, like esotericism, which he put in contrast to exotericism, that is to say exoteric religion, which he was really not very keen on, especially the Catholic Church. And of course, French intellectuals at the turn of the century were not generally very keen on the Catholic Church. Uh, and and uh, Italian intellectuals like, like Evola were, were absolutely not at all keen on the Catholic Church. And then along comes Sean and decides that perhaps there's something to the Christian churches after all. Uh, perhaps more to the Orthodox than to the, than to the Catholic Church. But Sean is interested in exoteric religion as well as esoteric, esotericism. And that's one of the things that makes him, him different. And another thing that makes him different is that he actually sets up his own Sufi order. The other people we've been talking to, talking about, you know, they're intellectuals, they're, they're, they're perhaps philosophers, they're writers. Um, the occasion is they'll set up a journal or something, but none of them really set up a group. I mean, Evola, Evola becomes, after the Second World War, he becomes a sort of guru for a group that somebody else has set up uh, called Ordine Nuovo, which uh, is, is actually a terrorist group. Uh, but Evola himself doesn't set this up. Some, it, 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 it splits off something else. And then they sort of grab Evola and say, please, you know, teach, teach us. Professor, they often called him Professor. It wasn't actually a Professor. But they called him Professor as well as Baron. Uh, so both of them, what should we call them, honorary titles. I think. Mm. <laughs> yeah. um, 
But, but Sean does what everybody else has been doing, and he, and, he, and, he, and he writes books and articles and so forth. But he also sets up a religious group. And this turns out to be extremely important because the, a lot of the members of this group are also intellectuals. They're, 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 some of them are professors working within the educational system. Uh, some of them are, are working in, 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 in museums uh, or whatever. But, but this means that they are also writing books and as time passes, uh, turning up on television and things like that. So they um, amplify Shuan's impact and influence and teachings very strongly because there, there, there are lots of other people who are basing their understandings of the architecture of Fez or the nature of Native American religion or Orthodox Christianity or music or, or, or many things like that. Uh, that so, so they're, they're applying Sean's understanding, which because it includes religion, is a bit different from Gettin's. It's a bit more universalist, uh, isn't it? It's, um, uh, yes, it's more universalist, absolutely. And 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 get I mean, you know, anti-modernity, modern Catholic Church completely excluded, um, not quite as bad as theosophy, but almost. Um where whereas whereas Sean is 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 happy to work with the religions. I mean he doesn't he you know he 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 doesn't sort of start having meetings with bishops or anything like that but but he's he's promoting a more religious view of the world and it is as you say universalistic yeah that's great um, so they're all kind of at some point alive at the same time so did do these three <laughs> traditionalists uh, communicate uh get on sure communicate because there's Sean is, is is the younger man who uh, reads Gaynor's books and, like many people, writes to Gaynor and there is a correspondence which develops um, and it's actually Gaynor who encourages Sean to turn towards Sufism and so forth. And, and then in, towards the end of his life, um, gets increasingly critical of Shun. Because as far as Gaynor is concerned, in order to be a proper Sufi, you have to be a proper Muslim. And in order to be a proper Muslim, you have to be a proper Muslim. Full stop, end of story. Whereas for Shun, yes, to be a Sufi, to have access to the esoteric, uh, you, you need to be some sort of a Muslim. But actually what really matters is the esotericism. Uh, not the Islam. So, especially if you're in Switzerland, uh, you know, you don't necessarily have to sort of fast the whole of Ramadan. <laughs> and you, know, you, you, you can 
you can if you're if you're going to visit your uh, your relatives um and it'll look a bit weird if you're not drinking you can have a beer or two perhaps uh, and, and when Gaynor hears about this he says no stop this is all going completely the wrong direction this is modern this is fiddling with things this isn't authentic this is not the real thing whole point is to go to the real thing so uh, and the again is, is is old at this point and, and soon and soon dies. But there is this breach between him and and Sean. Genot and, and Avila um they never meet. Uh it's really Avila is more impacted by Genon than the other way around. Uh yeah. So it seems that um, myth plays a big part in traditionalism as well. And in, um, also uh, the Vedanta is, is very yes. important to Gunon. Yeah. But uh, Gunon and Evola had two very different kind of approaches to that almost. Like Evola seemed to feel that you could extract truth um, from these things, whereas Gunon, oh, God, I keep hitting this microphone, Gunon, um, it feels like felt that that was the truth, you know, the, the um, you know, the, the Vedanta. Yeah. I mean, also the texts, I mean, the, the, the texts that, that you're referring to are, are somewhat different as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, uh, Genon is most interested, as you say, in reading Vedanta, and that that's quite doctrinal, quite philosophical. Whereas Evola, as a good Roman imperialist, uh, likes oh, classical myth. Um, and he he treats myth a bit differently. He's he yeah, as you said, I mean, he 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 has the idea that one can find truth in the myth. Whereas precisely as you said, for 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 Gennon for Dander is the truth. That need to extract it in the same way. And Evola is also a bit more omnivorous than than Gennon. One thing that I found really interesting was that in your book you talk about the sort of decline of the centre-left and centre-right being a kind of doorway for the traditionalist movement to shuffle no. through, almost. Can no. you talk a little bit no. to that? Yeah, well, I mean, if this is this is part of the of the bigger question of the the rise of the right or the the rise of the radical right, and this is crucial to explaining the growing popularity of political traditionalism, because if you think of of political traditionalism as a a, a boat floating on the sea. Uh, as the sea itself rises, the boat rises. And this, this was very visible, actually, with, with Dugin, who, when I first met him, read him, um, he was a very marginal figure in, in Yeltsin's democratic Russia. And visibly what happened there was that Dugin's views, which were very much influenced by Evola as well as Gin, came closer and closer to the mainstream. Not because he was changing what he was saying, 
but because the Russian mainstream was moving quite dramatically between you know the early the early Yeltsin years and and mid Putin period, so uh, that's the Russian that's the Russian case. But if one's looking at the West as a whole, then it's you 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 have to you have to look also at what's happening what's been happening in, in, in Western politics over the last thirty years. And there's lots of people talk about the rise of of, of pop, the populist right or no nobody's quite sure what terms to apply. Um, but I mean, you know, very clearly something something is happening, and you can see it not so much in the UK because the UK has has this rather odd two party system. But if you look in in countries, most other European countries, which have got some sort of multi party system, uh, you just have to look at the voting figures and. You know, there's some obscure right-wing party that somehow manages to get into parliament, and everybody thinks, <laughs> "How weird! Oh dear, dear!" Uh, and come back a bit later, and this party is getting 25% of the vote. And come back a bit later in certain countries, and they're actually forming the government. Um, so. There, there is this very clear phenomenon, especially clear, as I said, in, in other European countries, um, of, of the, the, the rise of the right. And you know, how has this happened? Well, it's, it's you know, you always have push and pull, don't you? Um, you have, if something's moving into a space, <coughs> something has to move out of that space, or if something does move out of a space, that, that invites other things to move into it. And I think it's, it's clear also that the, the, the left-right politics that people of my generation grew up with, which you know, was about this titanic struggle between the, 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 the mining unions and the, you know, I mean, there aren't any miners any longer. It's all finished. <laughs> Most we've got, we can we can try and have a titanic struggle between the the junior doctors or something, but it's it's not quite the same. You know, the, the, the 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 great battle of socialism against capitalism it's over. So what's going to replace it? <coughs> to some extent, what people call value politics has replaced it. Um, that you know, I mean, if the old politics, if one could call that class-based politics, well, it's it's different groups nowadays. But um, also, to some extent, partly part of this, because because the right is also becoming a sort of a sort of identity group of its own. Um, but anyhow, you've got you know, as, as the as the old politics moves out, and new politics moves in. And part of that new politics is that parts of the right, which 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 have previously been marginal and and nobody taken very seriously, um, become less and less marginal, and therefore <coughs> the the thought 
within those groups becomes becomes more and more important. I mean, one of the questions is why has everybody started translating Evola into every language you can possibly think of? When when I when I was first reading Evola, uh, there were I think there you could find a translation of something or other into French. Um, but I mean, basically, you had to read them in Italian, and, and the English translations didn't exist. Now, do you want do you want them in, in in do you want them in English? Do you want them in Hungarian? Do you want them in German? Do you, it, it, it's so <coughs> you you can see this growing interest simply in in the growing number of translations. Yeah, even some of his kind of more occult works have um, been translated into English yeah. now and you're seeing like a kind of occult style books being released you know uh, there's a real trend within the occult at the moment to release these kind of almost talismanic looking you know very uh beautiful books it, lovely editions which I say mm. of, of books but you're starting to see certain Evola books come out in that strain as well which is very interesting yeah yeah it's, yeah, yeah, yeah yeah so when, and that 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 gives us this overlap between the esoteric and the political mm. yeah. yeah and it's it is that's obviously something <laughs> I find. so bannon's traditionalism is interesting mm. I, I wonder what ganon would have thought of bannon's traditionalism and um would he even recognized it as traditionalism ganon ganon had a big problem with the united states mm -hmm. uh there's this lovely exchange between him and ananda kumaraswamy who was uh, uh Sort of Sri Lankan English guy who moved to the US and and who, who worked a lot on symbolism. And Kumaraswami says at the end of a letter, they don't, the, the Genos correspondence is never very personal, but, but Kumaraswami says at the end of a letter that he's going away to the woods for the summer. And Genon writes back and says, What do you mean to the woods? Do you have woods in America? <laughs> Kumaraswami <laughs> says, says, yes, I'll send you a photograph. <laughs> um, so, 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 Geno, who never went anywhere near the United States, had, had this idea of the United States as the sort of apogee of, of modernity, um, which Dugin has to some extent as well. Um, so, um, I think, I mean, what, what, what Dugin has, sorry, what, what Bannon, I beg your pardon, what Bannon has taken mostly from Geno is the critique of modernity and the need for some sort of spiritual counterweight to that. Uh, and, and for Bannon himself, this is the Catholic Church. Now, Sean would probably have been okay with that, but Guénon was not okay with the Catholic Church because he thought that the Catholic Church had completely lost the esoteric content that once it had had. So for him, the Catholic Church was irredeemably modern and at one point he thought that perhaps 
Now, they became Judaism, this was Sufism might revive the Catholic Church. Um, but he really gave up on that idea. So, Gaynor's first objection would be to Fanon's Catholicism. And his second objection would be that Bannon is trying to change society directly rather than trying to change the intellectual and spiritual bases of society. Mm. And that's kind of an interesting thing because, you know, I'm sort of in a weird way, he kind of part of his kind of traditionalist mission, I suppose, was to influence, wasn't it? To use what we'd call influencers these days, almost, to, yeah. to try and change the mindset of, uh, of, of society. Yeah. And, and, the, and here, I mean, here we get, we, we, once again, we get a substantial agreement and then we get certain disagreements on details within the movement because Gaynor, Gaynor's idea was of a small group of people who might transmit wisdom, esoteric understandings, etc., to the new age that would start after the end of the current one, to the new cycle that would start after the end of the current era. Whereas Ebola was more interested in political action. And if we look at the new right today with the way that they've all been reading Gramsci, or at least reading people who have been reading Gramsci, <laughs> yeah. um, the, you know, the, 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 there is a very definite idea there that by changing the terms of the public debate, we can change the outcome of that debate, that we can change, that we can indeed uh, change, change reality by influencing the way people are talking about things and the way that people are thinking about things. So we, we have the same basic idea that you need to change the intellectual, philosophical, esoteric underpinnings of, of, of phenomena, and then the phenomena will change. But uh, we have three different takes on, on how possible it is on the scale at which we should do that. One thing, but I'll let you go shortly. I have one, one question that had been kind of, not bugging me, but it, it kind of interested me in the book, which was, Gunon seemed to be very uh, aware of Oriental, Orientalism um, when it came to the occult or to, you know, um, yeah. esotericism, um, yet, and seemed to swerve that using, you know, that, that kind of critique using traditionalism. However, there is some there are some that argue that he sort of suffered from a reverse Orientalism. <laughs> um, and, uh, yes. yeah. yeah. Okay, well, I mean, here, of course, we've, we've, got, we've got two different senses of the word Orientalism. We've yeah. got the original sense, where Orientalism means the study of Oriental languages and literatures. And then we've got the later use established by Edward Said, where Orientalism means the intellectual aspect of the unequal power relations which are behind Western colonialism. 
Um, and Gaynor died before, say, years before, say, decades before, say, produced that second meaning. And he lived in an age where there wasn't actually an awful lot of discussion about colonialism, certainly not in, in, in the West. Um, Gaynor didn't actually like colonialism because he saw it as the imposition of Western modernity on traditional societies. So he was an early anti-imperialist in that sense. The reason that he didn't like Orientalism in the, 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 the meaning he had in his time, which was the study of Oriental languages and literatures, was that he, not that he saw scholars of Oriental languages and literatures as part of imperialism, although he probably would have agreed with that idea if anybody had asked him, but because he saw them as understanding only externalities, uh, as people who had no esoteric experience, people who wrote about the Vedantas or about Sufism or whatever, purely on the basis of texts that they didn't really understood, didn't really understand, because they'd never been there, because they'd never done that, because they'd never participated. So uh, for him, their understandings were inevitably partial and second-hand. And to have, you know, to have a real understanding, you had to have done what, what Ageli did. You have to sit there with a master, with a teacher. And, and learn directly and then practice it because the whole point of all these theology and, and philosophies is not an intellectual game. It's, it's, a, it's a way to achieve self-realization. I was going to actually ask that. It might even seem like a silly question, but did Ganon consider himself a mystic in, in that sense? You know, it, it... Uh, that's a very complicated question. Because Gaynor had a certain understanding of mysticism, which was a rather weird one, and he condemned what he understood as mysticism for being just a sort of random emotional state. Now, that is because he had a rather weird understanding of what mysticism was. In fact, in many ways, I, as a scholar, would classify Gaynor's work as mysticism. But, you know, that's, there's a big discussion about what do we mean by mysticism. Yeah. <laughs> but, but what I mean by mysticism, at least today, um, is this tradition of seeking a return to our, our transcendent origin uh, that we identify with the Neoplatonists, with Meister Eckhart, with the Sufis, etc., etc., etc. And if we call that mysticism, again, I was certainly participating 
in, 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 in his writings, in his actions, in everything, in that very broad tradition. So in that sense, Genon was a mystic. But in, in the way that, in the rather weird way that he understood mysticism, he criticized, condemned it. But that, I think, is, is because he got this rather unusual understanding of, of, of mysticism, which, which really related to what 19, late 19th century mainstream Catholicism was called mysticism. Yeah, excellent. Well, thank you so much for giving us some of your time. Um, where can people find you online if, uh, if you want? Well, they can find me online at Aarhus University. Um, and there's also uh, a blog about traditionalism. And if you, if you just uh, Google traditionalists blog, two separate words, uh, that should bring you to, to, to my blog. And um, there's a, there's a nice new book out. This yeah. uh, I have it here, last... but I don't have the dust cover. I have the uh... oh, <laughs> unfortunately I'll, I'll flash it up on the screen. But it's certainly the it's the most lucid account of um, traditionalism I've ever read. I mean, there's a lot of essays about traditionalism within other books, but this is definitely the kind of the go-to. I'd say now. <laughs> well, that was. I mean, my 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 objective was to make something which isn't always easy to understand, um, and which it, you know. I mean, you started with the question of what do we mean by tradition? Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> um, which isn't always easy to understand, but I think which 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 does make uh, a certain amount of sense, and. Whether or not you you buy the whole system uh, in 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 all respects, uh, it, still I think you know there are enough interesting things in it, even if you don't buy the whole system, to provide some 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 unusual vantage points from which to think about modernity and politics and religion and, and things like that. I think it also uh, it provides a good inroad for people that might find Gunon's work quite impenetrable as well because he's yeah yeah yes I mean, you know it's not easy reading uh, and it helps an awful lot to know what you're <laughs> what you're going to find before you you get into it. yeah so I guess the last question is what's next what what's your next uh, book going to be about or you know next study. Ah, <laughs> I, I, I'm, I've got a couple of projects that, that I'm working on, um, and I'm not quite sure which one's going to come out. <laughs> okay. Well, thank you so much for some of your time. I really appreciate it. Thank you for an enjoyable discussion.